Imagine being able to live totally free from the fear of death. That's certainly not how the majority of people, certainly in our Western culture, find themselves able to live. Death is the one great fear that casts its dark and gloomy shadow over even the most joyful moments of our lives. It's the constant dripping tap of remembrance that however good things are for me right now, now will not last forever. However good it is today, today will come to an end. The proverb so true, birth is the messenger of death. We know deep down that if we celebrate birth, if we are thrilled about life, we must also recognize death. Whilst most of us don't go to the lengths of uh, cryonics, the uh, freezing of your body on death in the hope that technology will improve and one day, a bit like Paul McKenna, will say, wakey, wakey, and up we shall uh, rise, although some famous people are ascribing to uh, that at the end of their lives, Peter Sellers, Muhammad Ali, to name a few. Whilst most of us don't go to such lengths, our fear is evident in the way we organize our culture. The euphemisms we use in the face of death, the protection we put around ourselves to save us from it and its harsh reality. The phrase invisible death is used. It's as if it doesn't happen, won't happen. If we ignore it, don't talk about it, act as if it doesn't exist, maybe it won't. No wonder Philippe Aries, the French uh, historian, termed the 20th century the period of death denied. And so we live as if it can be constantly, consistently avoided. King's uh, College study puts it like this. The contemporary view of death in the West is that every death is contingent, a matter of chance, and that in principle there is no reason why any particular injury or disease cannot be overcome. That's how we live, but deep down we know it isn't true, and that internal nagging eats away at each one of us. Maybe in the flushes of youth, we can obliterate any idea of our own mortality. But as Lewis Walpert confessed, the biologist and author, as well as self-proclaimed atheist, reductionist and materialist, he says this, as I grow old now and death is around the corner, I can see the attractions of believing in heaven. Sooner or later, we will all face our own mortality. We take out insurance to guarantee us, or at least that's the theory, we take out insurance to guarantee us against things that may happen. But there is no one in church this morning who has a life insurance policy. Although I notice that some companies are now adopting that name, maybe as another euphemism, a means of protecting us against the real thing. You cannot take out life insurance. It must be life assurance. Because the end of your life is not a risk that may happen, it's a risk that will most certainly happen. But even then there are no guarantees. The oldest mutual insurer in the world, Equitable Life, discovered that there were no guarantees to its cost. Equitable Life uh, has been providing assurance for uh, about 195 years in our country. But then in 1957, decided to offer a guaranteed annuity policy. There are no guarantees. And when the Lords in the year 2000 
said that equitable life had to match their guarantee even though they could no longer afford it. It was all over and a 1.5 billion hole was left in the company accounts. The only thing that was certain was that all the policyholders died. Life assurance for all of us, we hope, will take care of our financial investments, our property, our obligation to those that we love in the event of our death. We are wise to have such policies. But what about assurance for the soul? Not your stuff which is here today and gone tomorrow, but what about assurance for you? The freedom for you to embrace this life not in the knowledge that it will soon be over, but in the certainty that it's only just beginning. To live free from the power of death, released from its tyranny. Imagine in your heart and mind the enemy of life crushed, the dark clouds of death no longer hovering and gathering, but lifting, easing, free to live fully now without the ache of what is to come. Assurance for the soul. There's nothing worse, or I don't think, than going on holiday knowing that when you come back there's something to face. I would always prefer to face it now, delay the holiday if necessary, because what kind of a holiday is it if the storm clouds are already gathering? And what kind of life is it knowing that after it's over there's something to face? What kind of life is it knowing that the storm clouds of death began to gather the moment we were born? I tell you this, it's not the life God has for you. It's not the life God has for you. And in these final hours that Jesus spends with his disciples, that we're spending these six weeks looking at, he offers his disciples assurance for the soul. It was that assurance that made or enabled the Apostle Paul to quote or to, to speak one of his often quoted most famous words. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And if you know anything about what Paul thought of Christ, he's saying, for me to live is absolutely, utterly fantastic, because in Christ I've found everything that I need. But then he goes on, better still, I don't get up each day wondering when it will all be over. I don't live with the dread at the end of it all that there's something to face. No, he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Wow. Wow. For me to live is Christ, this utterly fantastic, totally complete, all-sorted life here on earth, because I know who I am. But to die, hey, that's game. That's the life God has for you and me. And here in these final hours, Jesus offers it to his disciples, this assurance of the soul. Turn to it with me. I hope you have your Bibles open in John chapter uh, 14 there in uh, front of you. Even in the face of death, his death, Jesus says to them that they do not need to have troubled hearts and they do not need to be afraid. Isn't that fantastic? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, throughout his ministry, Jesus had told him that there would come a day when it would be necessary for him to die. And the disciples, like we so often do in the face of death, they pushed it to the side, they pushed it to the back of their mind, they pushed it anywhere else than think about it. In fact, on one occasion, the disciples cried out, no, may that never happen. 
They didn't want to entertain any thoughts of it, but steadily, consistently, Jesus said through his life, it is necessary, one day I'll have to die. And maybe with all this debacle about the washing of the feet that we heard about last time, the disciples are beginning to understand that what Jesus said is about to happen. And they're terrified at the thought of Jesus' death. If he dies, they'll lose him forever. If he dies, it's all over. Surely, no Messiah, no hope. And Jesus says to them, no, you do not have to live like that. You can live different. You can live free to live and love and serve, knowing that your future is totally safe and utterly secure. You can live different. So what was Jesus' justification for this assurance? How could they be so sure, so certain, given that their lives were in this such precarious position? The next day they would be left totally alone. Nothing had ever seemed so uncertain for those disciples than right now. And Jesus says, you can be sure. What I'm about to say, you can hold on to, come what may. Well, firstly, Jesus says, you can be assured by my words. We can be assured by his words. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now this verse has much more power to me than meets the eye at first. In one of the other Gospels, the other stories about Jesus, the Gospel of Mark, we read the fascinating account of how the disciples arranged this last meal. How they carried out very faithfully Jesus' instructions to get the room and the meal ready. Mark chapter 14 tells us the story. Verse 12, on the first day of the feast, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And this is what we read. So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Weird. This is weird. Jesus says, you go into the city and you'll find a man carrying water. Hey, men don't carry water in that culture. It's like saying, go, you'll find a man knitting. Men don't knit. At least not where I come from. Disciples are going, you, you got to be, we'll never find a man carrying water. Men don't do that. That's a job for the women and the girls. The water's really heavy. A man couldn't possibly lift that on his head. So you might have imagined the disciples inwardly protesting. This is ridiculous. We're just not, you know, pigs flying comes to mind. Shoot for bacon. Man carrying water. No way. And then the instruction gets a, a little stranger. When you find this man you will never see, hey, follow him. Go into the house and say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? You can imagine the disciples protesting again, but we don't know who he is. How can we just say to a man we don't know, where is the room? Will he mind? Won't it sound rude? Will he know who we are? Why will he trust us? We're not city boys. We're fisher folk men from Galilee with rough skin and strange accents. He won't want to speak to us. Whatever their questioning, whatever their doubts and their reasoning, Jesus says, do it. And in the end... They did it, and we read that the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. Wow. Man carrying water on his head indeed. 
a man who owned the house seemingly waiting for these strange fisher folk from Galilee. Now in John 14, the passage is open in front of you, it's the meal that we've just been hearing about, how it was prepared and got ready. And at that meal, Jesus says, don't be afraid, even in the face of death, my death and yours. Why? Because I have told you. In effect, Jesus was saying, I told you exactly what would happen when you came into Jerusalem to find the upper room. Everything was exactly as I said, wasn't it? I asked you to trust me in this small detail. You weren't sure, but in the end you did what I said, and didn't it work out exactly the way I said it would? Now I'm asking you to trust me now, not for something small, but for something a bit bigger. It will be so. Why? Because I say so. Have I ever said something that turned out to be anything less than exactly what I said it would be? I gave you, Jesus is saying, specific instructions about this room. Now I'm giving you specific instructions about another room that's being prepared for you. My word about the earthly room was true, and my words about the heavenly room will be true. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we can be assured by Jesus' words. In the midst of their amazement that everything Jesus said was true, he says, and by the way, there is a Father in heaven, and he has got a room for you, and you know because I'm telling you. Assured by his words, but assured by his works. And Jesus says, because he's kind, if you can't believe simply because I say, then believe because of the miracles. If you find my words hard to believe, then let the miracles speak for themselves. And John tells us that Jesus' miracles were pointers, they were signs. Signs to tell us who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. And uh, we know at the end of his gospel he says, I've written some of these things down. And the reason I've written them down is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he gets them to think about the miracles. If you're not sure about my words, he said, think about the miracles. And as they cast their mind back over the miracles, what did they remember? Did they remember the physical stuff, the opening of the blind eyes, the cleansing of the lepers, the healing of the lame? Did they remember his power over the natural stuff, the calming of the storm, the walking on the water? Did they remember his power over sin, the way he could say to the paralytic man, hey mate, your sins are forgiven, and with that he gets up and walks? Did they remember his power over the education establishment, the religious institution, and all the people go, wow, this teacher's really different. He preaches with authority, not like the others. Or did they remember his power over death itself when he sees in the distance a widow uh, 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 walking in front of the funeral procession and her son is in the coffin. All her hope is totally gone because in that coffin was not just her dead son but the whole security she had for her life. And Jesus gives the widow her son back. Or did they remember when Jesus gave the synagogue ruler his daughter back? Or maybe when Mary and Martha got their brother back. Which one? And Jesus says, hey, if you're not sure about my words, then take a good look at my works. The miracles of these days, and be assured that what I say is true, and what I promise I'm able to deliver. A new business was opening up, and some of the friends of the uh, business owner sent him some flowers to congratulate him on the occasion of his new business. And when they arrived that morning at the new offices, the owner read the card with the flowers, rest in peace. The owner was angry. And as angry, uh, 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 as an angry man, he got on the phone to the florist and complained bitterly about the mistake that had been made and the message. 
The florist eventually got a word in and said, I'm really sorry about the mistake, but let's imagine somewhere today there's another funeral taking place and they've got a card, welcome to your new location. <laughs> there is a new location. There is a new location. And we can be assured by his cross. We can be assured by his cross. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's a lovely image. But it's not just a lovely image for us in our culture. It was a well-known image in Middle Eastern culture. Travel in that culture was hard. It was often across rough terrain, with constant fear of bandits and robbers. So the prospect of a room or a lodging for the night was a very welcome one indeed. Like little motels along the routes, people would open up their homes and welcome in travellers for the night, offering them the much-needed safety and protection and the replenishing of supplies for themselves and their animals before carrying on their journey the next day. However, the possibility of arriving at the final motel as darkness was falling and the chill of the night air was beginning to bite, only to find in the window the sign, no vacancies, was too much of a risk to consider. So they would send people on ahead to get the room ready, to book the room, uh, make sure it was uh, uh, ready, and that everything was there. People travelled in confidence because they knew the room had been booked. There was no uncertainty about the night that lay ahead because they'd sent someone on ahead. You hear what Jesus is saying? I'm the one sent on ahead. Why? To prepare the place for you, to get the room ready. You can travel the journey of life with utter confidence because there is no uncertainty about the night that's coming because I've gone on ahead and booked it for you. No doubt when the servant ran on ahead to get the room ready, he would need to have paid a deposit or perhaps even paid for the room in full to make sure it was theirs. Wasn't that exactly what Jesus was going on ahead to do? He was quite literally right there and then to make full payment. Not just for any room, but for your room. Paying for it with his own body and blood on the cross. At three o'clock the very next afternoon, he would cry as he died, it is finished. He might just as well have cried, it's been paid for, all done. Because it was. You know those chip and pin machines? Thinking of getting them in the pews, what do you reckon? <laughs> and you know when you type in your pin, and it goes pin OK, and then it's waiting for approval, and it's like everything pauses, everything stops, and it looks like the whole shop is watching your card. In my case, they probably are. The shopkeeper is embarrassed and, and blames the machine, oh, it's terribly slow today. And eventually the words come through to everyone's relief, approved. The green light goes on, you get your card back, you get your goods, you're off and you're on your way. It might have taken all of 60 seconds, but if you're in a hurry, it seems like it took forever. You wait 60 seconds, but Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. Six hours of utter darkness that must have seemed like forever. And he hung there naked and vulnerable, with the shearing weight of the world's pain in his heart, patiently waiting for the words from heaven, approved, paid for, done. And with that he died. 
Next time you wait 60 seconds for your credit card, remember the Son of God waiting six hours for the approval from heaven. Waiting till every last little grubby thought and deed was paid in full. That your eternity, destiny, your eternal destiny should be secure. You were bought at a price. Bought at a price. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse told of the occasion when his first wife died and he was driving home from the funeral with his children in the back and they were overcome so naturally with grief and he was longing to say something to his children that would help them at this crucial time of coming to terms with their mother's death. And as he struggled to find any words of comfort that he could offer, a truck swept past on the outside lane and its shadow went right over the car. And as he saw the truck go into the distance... It's like the light came on and he said to his children in the back, which would you have preferred, to have been ploughed over by that truck or just its shadow? Hey, why, the children said, just its shadow, the shadow can't hurt us. Dr. Barnhouse said 2,000 years ago, the truck of death went over Jesus Christ, but it is shadow, might go over us, hallelujah. Just his shadow over us, just his shadow. We can be assured by the cross And we know that the cross achieved everything in God's heart. We know that the cross was successful in defeating sin and death because of the resurrection. And Jesus reminds us we can be assured because of his resurrection. Because if I'm going, if I'm going to prepare that place, I will, I will come back. These words read on different levels. I I think Jesus intended that they should. Firstly, of course, that's exactly what Jesus did. He did come back having prepared a place for us on a cross, having paid the payment in full, he came back just as he said. Here was a man who keeps his word even in the face and presence of death. We live in a world that has no answer to the problem of death. And to many it looks like death is in charge. That even death itself has in some way beaten or defeated God. Mr. Robbie Williams, the well-known commentator on today's world, sums up the mood of our age. Auntie Joan died of cancer. God didn't have an answer, but it's not true. It's not true. God does have an answer. Three days later, he came back. Thank you. Three days later, he came back. He kept his word and created a blazing trail that you and I in him might follow. He came back. The resurrection, God's ultimate answer to this life that's hanging in the claws of death. Excuse me, of death. Life, not before death, but beyond death. Life, not under death's power, but above it. But these words packed with meaning point to so much more because 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended up into heaven and almost the last words were, I'll be back. I'll be back. Is there any reason on earth why we should not trust him for those words also? A coming back which will result in him taking you and me, all those in Christ, to be with him forever. And so the resurrection in every sense is the ultimate assurance. Jesus himself made it the peace de resistance. If he had not come back, he'd still be buried in a Palestinian grave. And so would our hopes and all sense of our assurance. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians, who were not sure about this whole resurrection stuff, he writes, hey, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're stupid. Strong language, I know, but that's the way he puts it. 
And then he goes on, he says, but much more important than just being stupid, if you don't believe in the resurrection, he says, you're without hope. Without hope. So we are assured by his words, assured by his works, assured by his cross, assured by his resurrection, and finally we're assured by his presence. Jesus said to his disciples, if you know me, understand you've begun to know God. Knowing me is like knowing God the Father. And then much more, he writes a few verses later. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show himself to him. If anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. The Father's presence with Jesus, making their home where? Thank you, Carl. In the believer's heart. The relationship with God that you have today in your heart is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what is to come. God makes his home in your heart on earth because one day you will go home to his heart in heaven. God makes his home in your heart on earth because one day you'll go home to his heart in heaven. I guess it's no surprise in the next few verses, Jesus is already talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit we know that was given as a guarantee, a deposit for all that is to come. Because we know God now, the future becomes certain even though we have not lived it. Because we know God now, heaven is already our home even though we've never been there. A sick man turned to his doctor as he was about to leave the, consultant, the consulting room. I'm afraid to die, he said honestly. Tell me what's on the other side. Very quietly the doctor said, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You're a Christian doctor. How can you possibly not know what's on the other side? The doctor was holding the handle of the door. And suddenly beyond the door there was a sound of scratching and whining. The doctor opened the door and a dog rushed in and sprang into the room, leaping around with an eager show of gladness. Turning to the patient, the doctor said, did you notice my dog? He's never been in this room before. He didn't know what was inside. He knew nothing about this room except that his master was here. And when the door was opened, he sprang in without fear. He went on, I know little of what's on the other side. But I know one thing, that my master is there. And that is enough. And when the door opens, I shall pass through without fear and with great gladness. Knowing the Father is the daily assurance of the soul. Or to use Max Lucado's words, seeing the Father's smile brings faith instead of fear. Let's just hear him speak, just for 30 seconds. You notice, though, that it's always and only to do with Jesus. It's only through Jesus that we see the Father's smile. The assurance of which we speak, Jesus says, is in him and in him alone. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so it's in him that you will find what we're looking for the whole world over. 
that we can live now, fully now, embracing every minute, no looming storm clouds, no approaching precipice, no sudden end. Embrace every moment, because to die is gain. If it were not so, Jesus said, I would have told you. If it were not so, I would not have lived among you. If it were not so, I would not have died for you. If it were not so, I would not have come back to prove it was so. And if it were not so, I would not, with God the Father, make my home in your heart, because one day your home will be in our hearts. Do you know this assurance of the soul today? Are you living free today? We can sign up by putting our trust in God and inviting him to make his home in our heart. Maybe you signed up years ago and this is just a little reminder of the detail of the soul assurance policy that God came from heaven to earth to give. We're his in life, we're his in death. The old hymn says, forever with the Lord.